Welcome back to the Six Ps Podcast. We have a very special edition today. I've got a very special guest with me to discuss our comparative texts in the Crucible and the Dressmaker. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi there. <laughs> um, I'm Elizabeth Chesterfield uh, and it's great to be back. Yes, and you joined us a, a few months ago now when we discussed the film Rewindow. Sure did. But we're back to discuss the comparative texts, which are new for this year. Well... The Dressmaker is new for this year. We've said goodbye to Year of Wonders on the same year that we deal with the pandemic. We get rid of a book about a pandemic. so It does seem like an interesting choice, uh, doesn't it, Jim? I, uh, don't, I can't say that I agree with Vika's choice there, but The Dressmaker has a lot to offer us, and that's what we'll be looking at today anyway. Forwards. Indeed. So today we're just going to have a pretty much a discussion about both the texts and just run through some ideas um, and how we might connect the two texts together both are similarities and something that we always say that we forget quite often is the differences between the texts which are easy to forget because um, subconsciously we're always looking to how can we connect the two how can we connect the two but it's also about the differences so I guess for you having we've done the crucible a couple of times what stands out to you as being um, your favorite part about the crucible um I think my favorite part, if I had to choose a moment, and I'll take this into bits, my favorite moment is obviously when Giles Corey uh, says the immortal line apart on Thomas Putnam. <laughs> leaving that aside, I think what I like about it is it's sort of uh, dual setting in terms of addressing both the HUAC and McCarthy trials um, that Arthur Miller was commenting upon, as well as the, the Salem trials as well. Um, that obviously continues to be relevant in terms of its themes of persecution and um, the ways in which we often seek um, opportunities to enact revenge upon people, um, which is sort of the baser aspects of human nature, um, as well as people who manage to effectively resist that. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's, it's so apt in today's world when Miller references things like when individual, individualism um, sort of overtakes a sense of community, that's when um, there's chaos. And we've seen that in the world over the past six months. Um, and some of his points are still pertinent. Isn't that so interesting that someone writing in the 1950s about something that happened in, 19, in 1692 is still relevant today? Absolutely. And one of the things that um, another individual drew my attention to when we first started studying the crucible um is that historically a lot of these um witch trials ended up occurring when there was a bit of a power vacuum and individuals saw an opportunity to uh, take advantage of that so i think one of the things we were discussing the other day uh, was the fact that it's deputy governor danforth um he's not the actual governor um and so filling into that power vacuum where the governor is absent um is i think something miller puts there but doesn't overplay and that's something for you definitely to consider when you're doing your analysis is this historical context is really rich um, we're dealing with real or character they are characters but they are real in so much as and it, the text begins with that note to the historical accuracy of the play this actually happened and is one of the key differences or the core differences for me between this text and say the dressmaker which is far more fictional so the social and historical context of the play is so important and something that i definitely encourage you all to to look into and i guess when we talk about puritanism that's also something that plays a significant role in the text absolutely and i think looking at um the ways in which members of the puritan community 
um, are either inside Salem or outside Salem, the ways in which some are within the church or without the church, covenanted, non-covenanted, I think um, it's something that you don't want to ham up too much, but it's something that you can draw your attention to um, and inform your understanding of the characters in the world in which they're moving. I guess the other thing that I, when I think about the Crucible, is I do think about Elizabeth and John Proctor, and I think that really powerful scene in Act 3, and it's actually part of the film that I really like. I'm not massive on the film. It drags on a little bit, but when Elizabeth Proctor, in that moment, has to decide to lie to what she thinks is protecting her husband or to confess that her husband is a lecher is so powerful and and strikes to the very core of who we are as human beings. Yeah, and I think it's it's so brutal, isn't it, that, you know, this one time that this paragon of virtue um, chooses to lie, and it's it's because she's viewing this as protecting her husband and protecting her family, and that protective impulse is ultimately what damns them, is is um, is such a brutal moment to, to watch or to read. And I guess that last act when they had that scene, they, you know, two of the last characters to, to sort of speak when, when she sort of says, no, I can't, I'm not going to stop him. Like, I won't. Um, he has his goodness now. Um, is again a really powerful moment and sort of shows us, again, that, 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 that aspect of morality and, and, and how that's almost, for John Proctor, that's more important than even his, his life um, and how his wife accepts that. And we talk about, it's a nice little link to about acceptance to the dressmaker but how relationships based on acceptance and trust are are so important absolutely and it's an interesting sort of um mirror and i think it's what makes the crucible quite interesting is that miller doesn't have just one sort of through line to say about individualism so in those moments both of the proctors are standing against what their community is urging them to do because it's with their personal relationship with God and with morality um, standing against that. So that leads us in nicely to talk about the dressmaker. And I'm curious to know the part about the dressmaker that stands out for you. I think I keep coming back to the idea of, of revenge um, again and again because obviously the ending of this text is so... Um, incandescent Um, (laughs) put that in your essays Um, but the sort of subtle ways in which revenge and vengeance manifests and the idea that so many of these people are small minded um, and not able to let these things go but even our protagonist returns to the place of this trauma and returns to this place um, where she is unable to, to let these things go um, and obviously burns everything down. So that's a good segue because we've had this discussion before mm. and it's one that I think you should definitely have in your own classrooms is can we justify Tilly's actions at the end of the text? So spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it but should of course have read it. Um, the play does close with Tilly burning down her house and most of the village, most of the town apart from windswept crest the Beaumont's place um thus sort of destroying the town physically what are your thoughts on whether Tilly's justified in her actions um as someone who obviously is not originally from Australia it does strike me as a particularly brutal choice um of revenge in terms of its form 
um, and seems to be almost like a attempt at a di- divine punishment, one of those sort of plagues um, <laughs> sent down. Yeah, that's good. I like that, yeah. Um, but obviously it's a human enacting it, um, which is inherently problematic that, you know, she's seeking this retribution in that way. Um, so I'm not entirely comfortable with it, and I'm not sure that we're meant to be. I don't Interesting. know. It's, 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 I think it's a point that, that we should look to argue both ways, really. Mm-hmm. And we really want to be flexible with our analysis because we don't know what the essay question will be on. But I feel like because there's a few reasons why I think Tilly is justified. And I think that's done through Rosalie Ham's storytelling. Um, we do get flashbacks to what happened to Tilly as a child mm-hmm. and then also as an adult. So it's the verbal abuse, which we see from both the children and the adults. It's the physical abuse as well from both Pettyman's, um, both Stuart Pettyman when she was a child, and then when Evan does it to her when he spits on her at the ball. And because we get an insight into that far more and in far more depth and detail than we find out about any of the other characters, really, about their previous lives and their current lives, I think Ham does want us to an extent to understand Tilly's actions. But you're right, it is a horrendous act. That does destroy almost an entire town. The Beaumont's house is not destroyed, and and that's, in a way, it's ironic because Elspeth Beaumont, who thinks she's better than the town, who quote unquote had heirs, um, who says this place that doesn't agree with me, um, has to take in everyone, and even the fact that the women in the town, when they go to Tilly, the one thing they say is, "I need to look better than Elspeth." Mm-hmm. There clearly is tension there. So I I kind of like that aspect of it, but I don't think these characters, and that's what they are, they are characters, I don't think they learn anything from what they've done, which is why I feel uncomfortable about the ending as well. And I don't know that there's all that much scope for them to learn anything because Mm. their destruction is so total. um, I mean, even the money that was set aside for them to rebuild for them to start again, perhaps if we're going to have a shred of optimism, having learned something from their trials and tribulations, that money's gone. Um, So the destruction of these people's livelihoods, their town is so complete and total um, that it does seem a bit of a bleak ending Mm. for everybody bar our radiant protagonist. (laughs) The other thing, I guess, with the ending, and we'll talk about the Crucible's ending in a moment as well, Mm. but Tilly arrives at night... Mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, in darkness, and she leaves during the day. Mm. So the idea, and dark and light comes up a lot throughout both texts. It's a nice little um, stylistic comparison that you can sort of make between the texts um, is is there. So that also provides me with that idea that, okay, maybe, no, she's leaving to a better place and there is a sense of hope for Tilly, but maybe not for the town. It's interesting. Well, and I think the ways in which, you know, I like that movement from dark to light... Um, to consider the context around what light and fire mean in an Australian context. Mm. Coming from a North American context, a lot of things around sun and fire are very positive because it's quite chilly a lot of the year. Whereas here, that fire is very dangerous and that dangerous aspect is is highlighted by the setting. Um, Mm. So moving from darkness to danger. I don't know. Although she's leaving. She is leaving. Yeah. But look, fire is a great symbol to, to look at. It does link in well with the crucible as well, being a crucible um, and the heat 
and and the fire within the courtroom that Judge Danforth references as well. I did want to touch on the, on the endings though. So we get this a little bit jarring ending in the dressmaker. There is a sense of justice there though. Let's talk about the ending of the crucible. How do you find it? I find it very sad. Um, the epilogue, I I kind of like. Um, in terms of, I kind of like that, you know, Abigail robs her yeah. <laughs> uncle and becomes a sex worker, um, allegedly. Yes. Uh, the legend has it. Um, Echoes Down the Corridor, I think, is such an evocative title for that um, in terms of the idea that these people's lives don't end there. There's not that finality. There's a suggestion that... And, and Miller makes this comment and point a few times throughout the play that these people are the progenitors of the Americans who are seeing this play, um, that this is where they've come from, this is where their society is built on, um, and that we need to not forget that, which again connects with his context around Hewak and, and McCarthy, that this sort of uh, wheels within wheels keep <laughs> wheeling along yeah. um, for the foreseeable future. But leaving aside that epilogue, because obviously it's quite short, um, it's, a, it's a devastating sort of ending um, with Hale having progressed to the point where he no longer believes in what he's been doing um, and the the moral victory being one of, of death. Mm. Yeah, and that's that, that that's something that you should definitely look to analyse as well, is, is what message is the audience left with? And to an extent, we, we are proud of John Proctor, but nonetheless, it's poignant, it's, 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 it's sad. Um, that he has to sacrifice his life, that it's sort of come to this, that he made that one mistake, which he regrets, and, and, and that's what costs him his life. And as human beings ourselves, we are prone to making mistakes, and, and what the consequences of those are can be quite significant. And I think you mentioned the references there to 1950s and, and, and McCarthyism, and that's perfectly illustri- illustrated here when you have these corrupt governments and corrupt systems that you know there's no one there to oversee them how dangerous the consequences can can be and he's we don't know that three years after this he was questioned by huac and for me the allegorical nature of this text is something that i would definitely definitely be be, be studying and that historical context is so rich absolutely miller talking about um the inability for the Puritans to be able to seek absolution, I think yeah. really nicely connects with what you're drawing attention to is one sin, one mistake. You don't have, because this form of Christianity has rejected the ability to seek absolution from a priest, but also from one another. Mm. And, and Proctor seeks this a number of times from Elizabeth and each time she says, it's, it's up to you. You have to yeah. forgive yourself. God has to forgive you. I cannot function in that role um which both damns and saves him um damns him to die but he is able to save his soul with the choices he makes at the end um and i think that that connects to that puritan context really nicely beautiful any characters from the crucible i mean we've got the proctors who i think most students like to focus on is there a character and danforth too i should say those are the three core ones i think that we see a lot of is there any other character you think is underutilized or under analyzed by students um 
if I can be completely biased because he's my favorite character, my favorite character <laughs> is Giles Corey. Yeah. <laughs> I love Giles Corey. Um, he does have my favorite quote of the play. Yes. Um, obviously, apart from <laughs> Thomas Putnam. But, but more than that, he's um, a wonderfully sort of nuanced character. He's a litigious individual. Um, and there's a lovely little bit of banter between him and John <laughs> Proctor um, saying, well, you can't sue me for saying you're deaf and like <laughs> all of that kind of thing um there's there's no ill will there i think between the two of them even though he sued john proctor yeah. <laughs> um, and all, he, he's been in the courts so many times he acts as a little bit um i don't know if i'd go so far as to say he acts in in the role of a fool in terms of exposing truths as a fool does in lear and things yeah. like that but um He's a little bit silly, and he, he stumbles into his accusing his wife. He yeah. doesn't mean no. to. He's just confused as to, why is she reading these books? Yeah. I don't get it. Um, and yet, yeah. And it's funny because in Miller's authorial interjection when he introduces Giles Corey, he goes, he was really old, and he just learned his prayers. <laughs> so it made sense that, of course, he would stop prayer. And Martha Corey, unfortunately for her sake, yeah, she does end up dying. But isn't it so powerful how... And the dressmaker does have these comedic moments. I think that's what sets it apart, quite obviously, from The Crucible. But Giles Corey does provide that sense of relief for the audience when he comes into the text a couple of times, especially in Act 3 when he's so confused, when Danforth sort of says, yes, my father must have mentioned you at some stage. But how powerful is it he's the one who isn't hanged? He has a different punishment. He's pressed to death. And it's that weight that he feels um, for betraying his wife and betraying his friends. And he doesn't want to do that again. I will not give you no name. I mentioned my wife's name once and I'll burn in hell long enough for that. I stand mute. It does raise his... Him as similar to John Proctor, it raises his character and his moral integrity, which I think is so important to him, just like it is for John Proctor. Any characters from The Dressmaker? So this is our first year doing it, and from what I can sense at the moment, we've dipped our toe in so far. Tilly is going to be discussed a bit, um, and I sort of think that I'm curious to know where kids will go from there. I think Teddy's someone to look at quite closely, um, and I think the relationship between the two is really important because as I compare it to John and Elizabeth, I think John and Elizabeth... Their, their plot revolves around the rebuilding of trust, whereas for Tilly and Teddy, it's about building trust, particularly from Tilly's perspective, which we gain most insight to. Are there characters who you um, gravitate towards in The Dressmaker? Yeah, I really like Irma, Irma Almanac and also Marigold Pettyman. I mm. think those two characters function really well along with Mad Molly as the women taken advantage of and exploited. Um, And I do get more of a a vicarious thrill from their bits of revenge um, than I do necessarily from Tilly's. Um, And I think the sort of empowerment, if you want to use that word, um, of these women or the the revelations and processes they go through to um, have the scales fall from their eyes and and all the rest of it, I think is is a really nice yeah. move. I think when Irma and, and Molly are, are talking, there's a great line about how they were connected and one of the ways they're connected, unfortunately, is through abusive men yeah. um, and how poignant that, that, that really is. There is a nice sense, well, I guess with Molly firstly, the fact that she is the most open and honest character 
in the text. And yes, she's mad. Um, and of course she's mad because she's been isolated for such a long time. It's absolutely understandable that without... I mean, apart from May and Irma, no one goes to visit her. Even Sergeant Farrett doesn't, and that actually embarrasses him yeah. when he's with Tilly. Um, but Molly speaks the truth, and of course, and we love our names in the dressmaker, but Lois Pickett, as Molly says, she picks her scabs and eats them. Nice little bit of visual there for you. Oh, delightful. <laughs> Edits at uh, twenty two eighteen. Cool. Um, but yeah. I guess the characters, and I think you've made a really good point here about that female empowerment, which is so important in this text. And we see it slightly differently in the Crucible, but it is still there through Abigail. But that idea of um, ironic justice in that Marigold's revenge and Irma's revenge, which is less conscious. Mm. But still, yeah, (laughs) thanks to some lovely brownies from Tilly. But that scene, particularly with Marigold, is, for her anyway, she manages to take control over this awful, awful man Mm. and exact that revenge, which, as readers, we understand, I think, as readers, that her actions, and it is also ironic because um, it's through the, the Marigolds that, Evan becomes impotent as well. Yes. So there's that double double layer there. Yep. And again, we've got the name yes. playing a role. Any other characters who you're you gravitate towards? Um, I was just thinking about those those women and and Mad Molly. Just before I think about someone else, is that I think him maybe commenting upon this really common trope when dealing with women of Oh, she's crazy. Do you know, like the the yeah. flubbing off of female concerns um, and sensitivities towards things like abuse and violence, which are so embedded um, in patriarchal societies that that dismissive attitude is again embedded in her name. We we don't listen to her, even though she is our Cassandra, our truth teller, um, because that would require breaking down the hierarchical power structure that they've built up and and ham says it and i'll look for the quote in just a moment but that the men when she's describing how the men interact um they put up with him because of his role as a counselor the women try to not be left alone with him and don't turn their backs on him because he's not to be trusted it's the um if you look up the broken stair theory, yeah. it's, it's, it's that, yeah. um, that everybody knows it, but we can't acknowledge it because to do so, we'd have to have some pretty tough conversations. Yeah, um, 100%. And isn't that, for this society, for rural society, how, and Ham is saying this is what life is like in any rural town in 1950s Australia. It's Tilly and Molly who are condemned mm-hmm. and not Evan. Absolutely. And... The way that she sort of depicts that through those really good quotations is that perfect snapshot of this is what's expected because everyone conforms. Yeah, and the the fact that in order for society to move smoothly, you need to ignore certain things. And I think we see that's the dark side of that um, ignoring of problems. But the the plus side is Sergeant Farage. Like, 
Otherwise, you know, society wouldn't just move as smoothly if he enforced closing times on the pub <laughs> or if he ratted out all the people cheating on each other. So a There's certain, a lot of that, isn't there? <laughs> so much of that. Um, a certain amount of ignorance needs to be maintained, but we also see the flip side of where that goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Sergeant Farrat or Sergeant Farrat, I never know what to say. I call say Farrat and it sounds so... Like he's a ferret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Sergeant Farrat? Um, I kind of fear that having seen the movie before I read the book, the novel, I, um, I like him more than I would had I solely read the novel. Yeah. Um, but I, I like him. He's a, a sort of very not quite persnickety, but very precise individual Mm. in a lot of ways. Um, I like his secret life in terms of um, why he's been exiled from Melbourne and um, him pursuing that anyway. Just... I love the word precise. Hale uses the word precise. The devil is precise. He does. And I think precise is a word used to describe Puritans too, from memory, historically. They've been called precise. I think... That might be from much ado about nothing, potentially, that I'm getting that from. Oh. Bit of intertextuality, <laughs> which we'll get to with the dressmaker, of course. Oh, yes. We'll have to have a special series on Shakespeare and the dressmaker. Yeah. I think you're right with the film. is is And Hugo Weaving plays a really big role in that. And he's a really likable character. But when he first arrives in, in the novel, there's tension between the two of them. There's tension between Tilly and, and Sergeant Farrett. When he drives her up to the hill, she gets these moments and she feels and it's repeated a couple of times the knot in her stomach tightens um, because she remembers Mm -hmm. what it was like being driven by him leaving the town and then at the end I don't know what you think about this but the fact that she burns his clothes at the end what do you reckon that means in terms of their relationship yeah I think it it really emphasizes as you say that um, that she remembers that abdication of responsibility that inability or unwillingness to save her um, from what she needed to be saved from, that he is both an adult um, and he's the law within the town, Mm -hmm. um, and he does nothing at the time. um, Bar sending her away, which probably did in some ways um, really help her, but obviously destroyed Molly. Yeah. Um, so I think that he's included in the revenge yeah. in a way that um, in the film perhaps he is he's not. A, no. Yeah, what do you reckon? Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, you, you're right there. And I, I do like the scene when she gets the package and he turns up and he's quite excited by the package and, and he goes, oh, I, you know, I assumed May, I always knew May was looking out for her. Almost he sort of pushes the responsibility yeah. away. But... I think Tilly says it's amazing what a bit of nourishment will do and how I think she challenges him on that and the fact that he didn't play that role. And I think, again, that's part of the reason why, as, as you said, he's part of the punishment, the communal punishment at the end of the text. I sort of want to touch on the different styles that the authors use, or the playwright in Miller and the author in, in Ham. And when we talk about essay writing, I think it's really important that students do focus um, not focus too much on just plot and characters, but also focus on the way these texts are written because they're both very different. I might start with The Dressmaker because I, I quite like a bit of the humour in there. We might start with the names because they're pretty obvious. Beulah Herodine mm. is a classic one. I think she's she's trying on a little bit of a Dickensian situation here, you know, like 
giving us those names that <laughs> give us a sense of who the person is without necessarily having to um, give us backstories like Miller does. But Beulah Herodine, Beulah, I haven't looked up the meaning of the name, um, but it's, the sound of it is sufficient for me. Have you? Ferris. Ferris? Ferris Bueller. Oh, Ferris Bueller. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I always think of. Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> that, that's the name that I keep. That, that, that sandbot keeps coming up. Bueller. Oh, you should insert that. I will. Um, but Herodine, isn't that like. A conniving, gossiping woman. Yeah, there you go. And what what is is. And what happens to her? She goes blind after looking on everyone by a record player. But it's fine because they put a note on her. Like yeah, that's right. It's in her way. Like that's so. That's true. Uh, that's so harsh. Um, trying uh, to mitigate the, the effect yeah. of putting someone who's been blinded on a train that's by themselves. It. I like the dims. So we've got yeah. Prudence Dim, the teacher, who has yeah. taught for as long as anyone can remember. Yeah. And that highlights that rigidity, that that lack of progress in the town, which also comes up with Hamish and his love of trains, which comes up a lot. It does come up a lot. <laughs> just start talking about trains out of nowhere. It's almost. Um, like I'm he's watched YouTube clip, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, what chance do these kids have at yeah. being taught by someone named Dim yeah. and Prudence? You yeah. know the ways in which she goes through everyone's stuff, stuff. and yeah. judges them accordingly. And, and you've got Ruth who doesn't pay the insurance, but instead pays Tilly yep. for for dresses, and ultimately that means they don't have any money to rebuild. Um, but I like you, and you mentioned it before is is the way that Ham introduces the characters is so vastly different to that of Miller. It's mm-hmm. the name mm-hmm. and it's also the fashion. And I think mm-hmm. that is something I would look into as a student. And it's something that I did on my third read that I finally said, you know what? I need to work out what Georgette is. I need to work out what yeah. all these fabrics are um, because they do play a role in describing who these characters are or, in the case of later on in the text, who they want to be or what mm-hmm. they want to appear like. Absolutely, and that's where the naming becomes even more important is when they're starting to pretend. Um, you remember what their original names were, and even with characters who try and alter their names, there's that memory of, of where they started and who they started life as, which I think is um, is quite interesting. So with that, Miller, on the other hand, is very different in the way he introduces his characters. He's far more explicit, mm-hmm. and we get... Really strong details about the characters, their their backstories, their thoughts and feelings, their values, particularly the male characters. So I will say that Elizabeth doesn't get an introduction. Mm-hmm. Abigail gets two lines. Tichuba gets two lines. Um, I think Rebecca Nurse is the only female character in the text to actually get a formal introduction through Miller's commentary. Can we read anything into that? I think so. I think we're we're still privileging that sort of um, sort of male-led society in that way. Um, but I think Rebecca Nurse, I like that she's singled out in that way because Proctor looks to her, and we as an audience look to her um, in terms of how he should comport himself in those last sort of few moments. And it's because she is making the choice she is that he makes the choice he does. I firmly believe that yeah. is that if she had chosen differently that he would have kept on down the path of, of saving his skin rather than his soul. Yeah, and he refers to her as a saint. Yeah. Um, and that he can't mount the gibbet like that. Yeah. Um, which I think, again, Rebecca Nurse, perhaps a character that, that isn't referenced an awful lot, but one that definitely mm-hmm. can be, um, especially when we talk about moral integrity 
Um, she's, and it's mentioned by so many characters. In fact, it's mentioned by Miller. And even Hale talks about the fact Hale's that he, heard of her. he's heard of her. Yeah. A woman in 1692. So I think that's something that I would definitely um, be looking at for sure. And the fact that she brings people into the world. Like, she mm. is this life-giving, life-sustaining force that is then rudely wrenched from the world by these, this sort of male judicial system. And even by, well, particularly targeted by someone like a, 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 an Anne Putnam who mm. confesses herself to sending her daughter to Tichuba, to conjure mm. spirit. So the fact that Anne Putnam actually, or potentially the only person that actually confesses to actually doing witchcraft, yet she's not punished. Mm. In fact, her husband is the one that abuses the judicial system and gains quite greedily from this. Um, I just remember my favourite quote from the Crucible as well. Yeah. You are a brainless man, Mr. Paris. <laughs> that is a great quote and a great insult. Yeah, it is, what isn't a great it? Insult. It is a great insult. Um, but I think if I'm studying this text, mm. I'll be looking at symbols as well mm. and what they represent. So we spoke about fire before. We spoke about well, we haven't spoken about it, but the idea of why it's called the crucible. Yeah, that in this, well, a, a crucible yeah. <laughs> um, being used to, to melt down um, and purify metal. Um, and these people, their true metal, but spelled differently, nice. uh, <laughs> is being extracted through this, this harsh process um, that they're, they're going through. And you see who these people really are. Um, which I think you also see in the dressmaker. Hundred percent, yeah, mm. yeah, um, for sure. And it, it is, and again, it's not. It is internal forces that destroy both towns. Yeah. It really is, and that's a great bit of comparison. And, and I definitely call on all of you to really look at how an atmosphere, how an environment has such a big environment has such a big impact yeah, on how an individual, but also how a community acts when faced with challenges. And the fact that they can't, that isolated, contained community is is so in, integral in terms of the fear of the forests and, and native people um, closing them in. The, the fear of the unknown and the fear of the outside keeps them locked in the, the cycles and wheels that they're, they're going through. Just back to characters for a quick sec. Mm. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me upon reading The Dressmaker and every time I read it, is the ways in which the character descriptions, the positive ones, are limited to two characters. That if you look at the physicality that Ham describes for every character, even Irma and Marigold, who we are meant to retain some sympathy towards, they are described in in very um, uh, sort of disgusting ways. Mm. Um, And we see this in some ways with Arthur Miller. Neither of these authors are shy about letting us know how they feel about these particular characters. Miller, obviously, much more directly through his authorial insertions, but I think if you you go through, as I did, and and take notes on every character, um, the descriptions are vastly different. Yeah, Yeah. correct. And And that's where you as students can use that and discuss the way in which the authors... Um, want to convey meanings surrounding these characters and they do it quite purposely mm-hmm. and we always need to think about why the author makes those decisions and, and what as an audience we gain from those or maybe what we don't gain because I think Ham omits a lot of information as well mm-hmm. um, particularly the main thing she omits and it comes up 
about halfway through the text is what actually happened to Tilly. That is omitted. So we really still are questioning Tilly and, and how she views the world and, and her actions until we get that significant flashback of what Stuart Pennyman does to her. It's not until then that we actually get a full understanding of, okay, this is what happened to her and this is why she acts the way she does. And I think the, the ways in which... I'd have to look back at the Crucible again, but Miller seems to describe people's actions, beliefs and interactions with one another, whereas a lot of um, Ham's descriptions are, are about physicality and are about appearance, which then is meant to reflect the interior being of these people, which then plays really nicely into a lot of that symbolism um, and the ability with uh, the ability of Tilly to start changing these people. Yeah. And, and how Tilly just before she goes to the ball, just before she gets literally locked out and her name scratched off, she tries to convince Teddy that, no, they're good people. Mm. You know, I'm doing a good thing here. And she does transform them physically. But unfortunately, not too long after she says that, their hatred um, comes out towards her. Yeah, and it, it made me just think, you, you saying that, is that to what extent are we meant to take the epigraph seriously? So the sense of being well-dressed gives a feeling of inward tranquility which religion is powerless to bestow. Well, are we meant to take that at face value and say, fantastic, we are going to endorse this idea that being well-dressed makes us feel good and that's the highest order of value that we can um, bestow and endorse? Mm -hmm. Or are we meant to be saying, zoom in on words like sense and feeling, so we're going for the feeling of inward tranquility as opposed to an actuality of inward tranquility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's actually a really good quote, I think. And part of what Ham is trying to underscore is that very point, is that appear... And, and it's a really good theme to analyse as well, this idea of appearance and deception hmm. and how a lot of these characters try to deceive themselves. Is there something you'd like to finish on? I just came to mind, I think we were talking about it the other day, just how much um, of a hell Danforth would find the dressmaker. <laughs> just in terms of the seeming. It is not what it is, but what it seems mm -hmm. like um, that everyone is, this pretense has run rampant mm -hmm. through Dungatar. Um, sorry, Dungatar. 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 Trudy. <laughs> Trudy. <laughs> but yeah, everyone changing their names, changing their appearance, yeah. and, and pretending that that changes their inner being, which obviously Ham points out it does not. No. So um, I just think that's a really nice... Um, I kind of want to put characters from one and the other and just see, yeah. <laughs> see what would happen. Well, I, I, the character, when I think about Danforth, I think, I think about Beulah. Oh, yeah. So Danforth is this official judge. Um, with both legal and religious power mm. and Beulah's this self-appointed judge of the town and actually quite often she's wrong as well mm. in the information that she spreads. The other thing I like about Beulah is when all the women are dressed up really nicely mm. at the ball and she's wearing a cardigan. I think that's kind of nice. She just is so out of place and she's like this school kid that just wants to play with everyone mm. but never gets picked. Yeah. She makes up about Trudy being only... Oh, Something about Trudy being married for only eight months. Well, they've only been married oh, for eight yes. months, but Ham showed us the wedding night and when they uh, consummate their, their marriage, yep. which isn't uh, as satisfying as, as they hoped it would be. I think 
truly read it better than Women's Day or something like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is really uh, both funny and sad. Yeah. In terms of, you know, that these people, the limit of knowledge in this town is such as they didn't get their year 10 respectful relationships, you no. know, and sex ed talk. And um, so the, the limits of knowledge are the limits of experience. Yeah, uh, 100%. Well, thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we, we, we are going to come back. We're going to discuss essay writing, hopefully with another special guest uh, at some stage over the next couple of weeks. Um, but thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in. If you have any questions for us, maybe next time we might be able to answer those. So send them in to 6pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6 podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Chesterfield. Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Sessions. And if you would close me out by reminding our listeners that proper pride preparation prevents poor... Performance. Bueller. Bueller. Bueller.